Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I have enough problems with static claims. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and let's be honest, it's only a matter of time before Anna replaces me with someone younger, prettier, and more appreciative of her jokes. I don't know where I would find that person, Dan. Aww. Like, I just, I, I don't know how. I mean, well, I guess I could look. <laughs> <laughs> This is Space the Nation, where we talk about science fiction through the perspective of political science and political economy, and in general, kind of nerd out. You can follow us on Patreon, and you can give us money there as well. We if like you money. become a all-access patron, you get episodes early, you get to participate in monthly AMAs when we remember to have them. Mm-hmm. We will never forget again. No. We Maybe. continue to apologize for spacing on the last one. And you can join the very lively Discord that we have, uh, which is now kind of just its own thing. People seem to be having a little community there, and they have watch parties without us and talk about their day jobs. There's an Adorables channel that I did not start. Wait, really? You didn't start that? I assumed <laughs> no, you had. I oh, my. Nope. Okay. Nope. So this has clearly taken on an organic nature of its own. This is good. Yeah. So if only for the Discord, and Discord is available to all patrons, The there is a level that's just at $3 a month where you don't get anything but the Discord. <laughs> but you're just basically kind of saying thanks. Yeah. And for $5 a month, you get everything else. And also there's merch and stuff. And you can pay us any amount, really. Some people pay us more than I think we're worth. But uh, (laughs) what are they paying for, Dan? What are we going to do next? What are we doing down the line? Thank you for asking, Anna. Coming up next on Space the Nation. um, (laughs) Coming up next will be the pilot episode of Fantasy Island uh, with Ricardo Monteblon and Hervé Velachez. We were also going to do, I believe, the Trouble with Tribbles episode from the original Star Trek as well. You decided that all by yourself. I'm on board. You wanted like a lighter (laughs) theme for the summer. No, I'm on board. I just think it's fun. I just think it's funny that you were like let's do this one so. <laughs> I, you know i occasionally will exercise yeah. executive power you know once your skein is fully activated of course then <laughs> I would defer to you. but um we will be doing the trouble with tribbles episode from the original star trek paired with the ds9 contribution to the trouble with tribbles canon and at the end of this month we will release our special patrons only episode uh which is devoted to 28 days later and that celebrates having 100 patrons we do plan on doing another patrons only episode once we hit 250 so please tell all of your friends and neighbors and maybe even your co-workers as you start seeing them in person as the pandemic eases that's right uh, waiters waitresses people you meet in line in the grocery store that you're not six feet away from <laughs> All of those people. Those people might enjoy our podcast. And and Dan, what are we talking about this week? This week we are talking about the novel The Power by Naomi Alderman. And it's worth asking why we are doing this. For me, the reasons are pretty simple. Uh, first of all, it's got the title Power in it, for fuck's sake. Okay, I mean, come on. This is clearly something where it's simultaneously got a sci-fi element, but also clearly an international relations element. We can also thank my spouse, at least partly, for this one, because she read this novel a couple of years ago. It clearly stuck with her. She always wanted my take on it, so this is a good reason for me to read it. And I agreed to this. Uh <laughs> Because <laughs> I love the way you put that. <laughs> because uh, this novel has been recommended to me multiple times by multiple people, and I started it like I think right when it came out in paperback, and mm-hmm. it kind of didn't get traction for me. But I, you know, a lot of good books sometimes I don't. The first chapter doesn't really work for me, but if I keep going, it works. So I uh, gamely forged ahead 
<laughs> and I did not like this book, Dan. Dan, I really did not like this book. <laughs> like, I just don't know how else to to say it. You would not like it in a house. You would not, not, <laughs> not like it with a mouse. There is some really good writing in it, mm-hmm. and I recognize that. And actually, like there, are, I compare this to how I feel about the movie Arrival in that, like aesthetically. It's a good book. Mm-hmm. Aesthetically, Arrival is a good movie. Mm-hmm. Like you can enjoy the aesthetic pleasures of it without agreeing or finding it believable <laughs> or, or being persuaded. <laughs> the better way to put this might be to say that there is a difference between something you don't like and something that is bad. And this is not necessarily yes. bad. Right. Exactly. This is not a bad book. It is more well-written than 99.9 of the books out there. It's just once we got past like the first part mm-hmm. i guess i would say like when the male rape started that is really <laughs> when i started to kind of started to lose me it, among the things i would not have predicted in advance was that you were more bothered by the male rape scenes than i were although i was bothered by them i'm not going to lie but well I, i'm i'm bothered by by rape yeah, i mean Dan. Okay. and and also i'll say i think that scenes of any kind of sexual violence need to be thought out as far as how they're used in works of fiction, works of fact, too. Hmm. This book, you know, basically it's one trick, (laughs) you know, it's one conceit is this flip. Mm -hmm. Everything's flipped. And I started to think about how I would feel if there were rape scenes of women portrayed in the same kind of detail Hmm. in this book. And it would be very upsetting, Mm -hmm. incredibly upsetting. And it was pretty upsetting just as it is. And... Like I said, sort of in general, because you're going to hear me say this probably (laughs) throughout this episode, my main problem with it, unfortunately, is the central conceit, um, which is that if you give power to one gender, they will take on the characteristics and traits of the gender that had power previously, I guess. And... Or to put this in concrete yeah. terms, if you give women power, they behave like men that have right. had physical and, and, power. And, and so, and, yeah. and, and of course, it's like ask the, is you know, gender really essentialist? Are there really like fundamental difference between how women behave and how men behave? And I don't know how much to save of, of my complaints. I will point out now that one of the ways I found the binary problematic is there are no gay people in this novel and there are no trans people in this novel. There are no non-binary people in this novel. There is... There isn't. No, it's not that. It Well, there is one character that we might consider trans, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Daryl. Roxy's brother. You know, yeah, but no. <laughs> right. But I, I agree with you. No. Like it's, 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 no, that's actually not it at all, Dan. <laughs> like it's I, not, he doesn't identify as another gender. Yes, that's fair. At I, all. Yes, I, that Which is, is correct. I don't know what you're, and you're, that's actually incredibly essentialist like to say that because he takes on a physical characteristic of a woman that he might be trans no he doesn't feel like no a woman he certainly all. does not no, 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 no. he never feels like a woman and a person who is trans but feels as though mm-hmm. they are that gender right that's fair so um, there's no trans people in this book and there yes. are trans people in real life and i think just aside i think as we get more accepting of transness in our culture, we're probably going to find out that there's been more of it all along than we realized. Hmm. So the absence here feels weird, especially since she's supposedly exploring gender. Just (laughs) what does it mean to be female is a great question. 
what does it I, mean to be male is a great question. And she doesn't really get to that in a way. Anyway, and I actually just more than the transness, I thought that was really weird. There were no gay people or bi people like that. I would actually agree with that. That was um, that struck me as odd. Yeah, (laughs) I was telling a friend of mine who's a lesbian about this book, and she was like, she was kind of just startled um, that women don't start having sex with each other. (laughs) Like (laughs) that, she was like, one of the things that happens, and you know, a lot when women are together and feeling like powerful, right is that they kind of just start being affectionate with each other. She didn't say it like it turns on, it we could consider it a turn on, but like you get affection and sometimes that affection turns physical, mm-hmm. you know? And I can see how that might be something that would happen. And, and also power is attractive too, you know? In and of itself, I will agree with that. Yes. Anyway, so uh, we're probably going to have me. I will note that Alderman, in, in multiple interviews, has I don't know if apologizes is exactly the right word, but has acknowledged that this was a flaw in terms of the way the novel was set up um, since then. So she's uh, this this critique is is been out there, and she is aware of it, and she which which part the lack of trans characters in the book okay. in particular. I would I mean it would be really interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Like it'd be fascinating to find out if the skein is part of what it means to feel female. Actually, Anna, this is a good chance to segue to the story behind the story because in response to what you said, uh, one of the things we do know about the power is that it is going to be, uh, and indeed as I speak, I believe it is being filmed um, as a television show for Amazon Prime uh, in which Alderman is, I believe, one of the writers and sort of one of the producers for it. So this is there's a showrunner, but she has significant input into this show. So it'll be interesting to see whether they address some of these concerns when they convert into a television show. And that is certainly, you know, one of the advantages sometimes of taking a second cut at the uh, the apple, as it were. In terms of other elements of this, some interesting things about Naomi Alderman, which is, in addition to being a novelist, she is also a game writer. Uh, I believe she is a writer for video games and and you know, cutscenes for those things. And uh, and she has acknowledged that, that actually played a role in terms of how she sort of structured the novel. Alderman's father is also a political scientist, so I just have to say yay on that. Not to imply in any way that that might have affected her, but like I just love the fact that, you know, for a podcast about sci-fi and poli-sci, we, we find that connection there. One of the ways in which Alderman was helped was that uh, she was in a Rolex mentoring program. <laughs> I wonder if she got a watch. Yes. Uh, <laughs> in which her mentor was Margaret Atwood. And Margaret Atwood was very intrigued by the, the premise behind this novel and sort of helped uh, foster its development. And the other thing I would stress, because apparently she was asked a lot about this given when the book came out, is that this was all written before Donald Trump got elected. So I think there were questions about whether Trump sort of infected how she... Uh, thought about it and the answer to that is no interesting i will point out something of historical context that i think is somewhat relevant which is uh there was a really good elaine showalter essay about this book in the new york review of books Hmm. and she points out that there are not very many pieces of feminist fiction that do this kind of flip where you have like a matriarchal society that's violent mm-hmm. and that um, exacts the violence upon men. Mm-hmm. But I will not read. <laughs> um, and then uh, the Ammonite, which I've actually recommended to you, Dan, I actually think is a better version and more complex version. It imagines a society without men, um, which mm-hmm. actually to me 
makes more sense that yes, some women in that society would be violent. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, like in any society, you would have some violence, but it's not like the overwhelming, you know, character. Overarching theme. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Showalter also writes about a short story called The Twig Benders that was written in the 1970s uh, pseudonymously, in which it's purely a gender flip about violent pornography. And she points out that was actually not intended to do anything except show you how terrible violent pornography is. Hmm. Like, it wasn't intended to be a realistic examination or anything. It was just intended to give men a sense of, like, this is what it would feel like if this was happening to people like you. And I think that sounds pretty effective. (laughs) And that's not what this is. Ooh, Um, I'm not so sure about that. As a man reading this book, I had a reaction to some of the... The way things were the structured. violence, not so much the violence, but the. I think it's actually subtler than that. Like the the, yeah. the last third of the book, the rhetoric that the women use, and in, and particularly in the framing device as well, was fascinating to me because it it triggered a few things as I was reading it that I, I would suggest that like I, I will yes. Yeah. On that point, that is actually almost like a Twigbenders-esque yeah. thing, though. It's just, it's, it felt like she's using a rhetorical device to show how insipid, <laughs> like, these, these it, it becomes when you have someone who, like, sort of being, having to be obsequious or feeling yeah. like he or she needs to apologize for, for being talented, mm-hmm. needs to, like, acknowledge the other person's power all the time. Yeah, and, no, and, so that, yes, that was problematic. But what I found equally problematic is the... Is the no, I didn't find that problematic. She's just flipped it. She's just showing, yeah, right, this right, is right. what, this no, is no, what no, women no, have no, to not do. not problematic. What, what, what I found upsetting even more was the sort of gently patronizing oh, yeah. and at times like you know like tone of the like the the, the female mentor that was the thing yeah and yeah. and that gender flip i don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves but yeah. that gender flip kind of made sense to me mm-hmm. because that kind of power the more fungible like less you know literal i do think can yeah. yeah structural power can have an effect on people and and i think a more a more rapid way mm. you know female bosses mm-hmm. like i think can take on the kind of rhetorical yeah sort of um strategies that any boss right. has it is really the the way that the more upsetting <laughs> characteristics that we might call masculine become overwhelmingly present in a in this female empowered society mm. It kind of just, like I said, it's almost it's almost just a, a premise problem for me hmm. more than anything else. But let us get to the actual book. There's some people listening who may not have read it, so yes, and I'm got to take them through the plot, Dan. Okay, and I'm going to try to do this, but I'm going to warn you that this plot is slightly more difficult to recap than most of what we've done <laughs> because the book is written from multiple vantage points and there is also a framing device that adds an additional layer of complexity and so there's going to be parts of the plot that i am going to skip or elide just because you know 
we, we don't want to go three hours. Um, yeah. The novel is structured in the form of a male Edmund Morris-style author uh, corresponding with a female mentor about writing a fictionalized account of the moment in world history when women began to acquire the power to discharge electricity from their hands. So, again, the, the novel is essentially written in much the same way that Edmund Morris might have written the biography of Reagan where there was fictionalized elements. So... Cut to the novel, which is cut to present day. Teenage girls have this electrostatic power. It's happening worldwide, and these teens can also apparently show other women how to use their skein. I believe it's pronounced skein, S-K-E-I-N, a muscle attached to their collarbone to do it. Their ability to control this power is fitful. Uh, And along the way, we're introduced to a variety of different characters, including Allie, a runaway from Georgia who killed her foster father for repeatedly abusing her. Uh, She seeks shelter in a convent and eventually takes control of the space after a nun accuses her of being the devil. Allie also hears a voice in her head who tells her she'll do great things, and she therefore rechristens herself as Mother Eve. Roxy, the daughter of a crime boss in the United Kingdom who uses her power to kill a rival gang leader that had killed her mom and then flees for a while uh, until the troubles die down, she seeks refuge in the convent run by Mother Eve. Margot, the mayor of a city in New England who is coping with an anxious male governor and a daughter with her own intermittent power issues. And then finally, we also meet Tunde, a Nigerian man who skyrockets to internet journalism fame by recording one of the first public instances of a woman using her power. Uh, He goes to wherever the power leads to political trouble, which includes Saudi Arabia, India, and eventually Moldova. Anna, I must say I was unsurprised that Saudi Arabia proved to be the first government to fall as a result of this new distribution of power between the genders. Uh, Were you surprised by that? Uh, Yeah, no. Um, (laughs) It's part of the really aggressive binariness, you know, that the most repressive regimes get the fullest kind of topsy-turvy treatment. Right. This is also where I'm starting to feel like, "Eh, really? (laughs) You know? And I don't want to get too like making up a whole separate novel, but it seems to me that if this, (laughs) I I am a science fiction fan who really does think about if this happened in real life, which may be a flaw. (laughs) (laughs) But I was thinking in these societies where they are incredibly repressive of women, they would try to figure out real quickly how to repress this power. Mm -hmm. Those would be the societies that would, since they have the most power, you know, at the moment, like there is a part in the book where they talk about at some point um, early on uh, men blinding women who had the power. Oh yeah. I think that there would just be let's say more pushback. Um, <laughs> well, to be fair, the the novel does have considerable pushback after Saudi Arabia's yes. government falls. Yes. Um, and that that part yes. it was not stunning to me that you would have to have a government fall before the, you would have yeah. the reaction. One of the things that the novel doesn't ever quite get a grapple on is this sort of question of what, in terms of actual fighting, what is the difference between women who have the power to use electricity from their hands as opposed to men with things like guns and fighter jets and so on and so forth? And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, it seems to me that having a, being able to generate electricity is a pretty awesome power. Mm-hmm. Yes. But if we were in the Marvel universe... Right. That person would not be, you know, up there with Iron Man and Captain America, I don't think. Like, I think well, as far as Thor, superpowers I mean, go, you know, well, that, that, that's but even he has a hammer. That's true. Like, yes. He has a hammer, yes. too. Fair enough. 
So, and and also there is the whole like fire bomb like they, she comes up with various ways that women use their power against guns mm-hmm. you know like because they're metal right. but like fi- flamethrowers I don't know yeah. tear gas or again like, just air power like you know the, there's lots yeah. of ways to <laughs> again it feels churlish to nitpick about some of the stuff because it's so clearly not what she's interested in. Right, right. And like, by the she way, is interested in, in a story where the genders are flipped. Right, and by the way, I and, think this also answers your question. This was something I was going to bring up before. Your, your your objection to the binary thing, and I think that's that's fair. I think part of the issue is, is that the conceit that Alderman comes up with, which is that this is a biological thing, mm-hmm. which is this skein attached to the collarbone, I think, unfortunately, that made it extremely difficult, I think, to at least on the trans issue side to bring it up because Mm -hmm. that and so in other words, I think the novel was structured such that, yeah, there was a reason why that wasn't covered. Now, I I agree with you that uh, the sort of gay character should have been. And also just if you're going to try and tell a story about what would happen Mm -hmm. and, and you're not just doing a fable. Right. You know. Like the twig bender is a fable. Mm-hmm. Like that's the, the when is the story where the pornography roles are flipped. This, if it's if it's really trying to explore, you know what happens when a female body becomes empowered. I just don't think it's a very <laughs> very nuanced. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the way to put it, right? I mean, I, I think in some ways it is a fable, though. I mean, again, think about it. In some ways, we're reading a novel within a novel. And yeah. the macro structure of the book is a fable, which is yeah. or, or uh, the, the closest analogy I kept thinking was Animal Farm, weirdly, because it's a similar story in which the oppressed class finally gets to experience power. And then what winds up happening is that they they replicate the very structures that they were trying to overthrow. Um, right, and so that that's sort of the parallel I kept thinking reading. It. Yes, I think that that is a good parallel to make, and I will not keep us on this first act any longer, except to say I liked Tunde a lot. Yes, I thought he was a good character. Um, he was Alderman's favorite it, character as well, by the way. Oh, and he was. <laughs> and one reason I think I liked him is that he was pretty nuanced. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and also I thought it was interesting to make him black because mm-hmm. it, it is subtle but there that he finds the flip of power to be good he sees it as a good thing and i think that someone who has experienced yeah a lot of racism and sees racism might be able to be like yeah this is this isn't necessarily going to be bad i mean of course it turns out being bad but Uh, at first i think he's kind of pro yes i think that would be the the better power that's the way i would put it i think his position on this evolves somewhat over time but that's fair well yes because of the male rape yeah speaking of which let's get to act two (laughs) um you know which i have titled if only men would smile more none of this would be happening as more and more women acquire the power, countries and societies react differently. In the United States, uh, communities start segregating high school education by gender to prevent assaults. Margot makes a splash by arguing on television that girls should be educated by North Point, a, a private security contractor, uh, in how to responsibly control and harness their power. Uh, this plays very well and emboldens her to run for governor against someone named Daniel, who has been lording it over her for years, as near as I can determine. In Moldova, women who are being abducted as part of the sex trafficking, global sex trafficking trade, revolt. Uh, the Moldovan leader says he'll crush those rebels, but First Lady Tatiana Moskaleva kills him in his sleep, takes over, and renames the country Besapara. Uh, she then promptly declares war on four of her neighboring states. 
That seems unwise, Dan. That really, I and as an IR thing, I was like, hmm, this is not good decision making. Yeah, although there <laughs> is, so we'll get to that in the IR portion. But, okay, but all right. It's all right. not it's not unbelievable. Let me put it that way. The deposed king of Saudi Arabia uh, funds a resistance movement in North Moldova, trying to find defensive means to protect against this power. And the Catholic Church, quote unquote, eats itself. There's a reference to an anti-pope in Chile, I think. Meanwhile, Tunde becomes something of a celebrity journalist, traveling all over the world and recording social unrest caused by this new power. He comes very close to being raped in India by a woman, but is thankfully rescued by other women. This experience unsettles him, and he also starts talking to urban docs who hosts a men's right website uh, and believes that gender war is coming in which most men will be killed. Anna, one of the small subplots in the book that I legitimately really, really liked was how an American cable news show coped with the shift in the gender distribution of power. Did you like that? I did like that, actually. Mm -hmm. It's funny. Some of the flourishes in this book Mm -hmm. hit me a lot better than the main plot. And this is one of them. I also weirdly thought it was more believable than, than everything else because it happens pretty subtly. And it happens, and, and then she does a great job of replicating kind of the voice of cable news, too. <laughs> yes. It works really well it, as if its own kind of framing device. Right. So for those of you who have not written read the novel, the way this works is the, it basically is like a Fox News broadcast where there's like yeah. a silver-haired anchor and a relatively attractive blonde anchor as well. And the older male anchor starts to really get unsettled by this and eventually does a rant on air and is sort of forced off the air. And then that anchor is replaced by what I would just say is sort of a young male airhead who winds up also having to do the sort of soft news stories in comparison. Well, I would say, Dan, Dan, how do you know he's an airhead? See, that's the um, thing. He plays is airhead. You, you, you don't, you, I mean, it would be, yeah. I, I would say, yeah, he plays an airhead. He plays an airhead. Like women must do sometimes. Yes. Yes. Fair <laughs> uh, and, they, and they also have the woman anchor like suddenly wear glasses to give her gravitas, which I found very amusing on multiple levels, but sorry. And yes, you mentioned Tunde is almost raped. And it's the first of, I think, there's at least three, maybe more. Three. Yeah. Yeah. And they're described in detail. Mm. And so actually, yeah, I'm just, again, this, I found this very upsetting. And I think it's because sexual violence is upsetting, period. And I did gender flip in my head. What would I feel if these scenes were portrayed with this much detail if the genders were reversed and you know i think that i would complain (laughs) you know like is this really necessary for the plot do you really need this so Um, i will say as a man it was obviously very unsettling to read those passages it was it it yeah, there's there's no like this book made me uncomfortable and I think in some useful ways and in some less useful ways. Would, would, I'm going to remember all that. <laughs> I mean, I I'm not going to be able to forget it cuz it is it's well written. Mm-hmm. You know, it's well written, really detailed. Also, and I hate sexual violence. I hate to say this, but I w- <laughs> This is awful to say. I will give Alderman props because the other thing that she comes up with is how women could do it. Uh, yeah. which was I thought clever even though it's like i'm reading this and like fidgeting and like yeah still i admire the conceit but like yeah it was not comfortable to read and uh, yeah 
All right, we'll just move on. I don't want to keep bogging us down and all my issues. Yes. All right, let us move on to Act 3. So, Margot decides to run for governor against Daniel, the incumbent. Um, and during the debate, as Daniel gets nasty toward her, Margot uses her power to shock him. Everyone says they're shocked and appalled by this. And exit polls say that she is, fin- is finished electorally, but in a shocking twist, she actually wins the election. At that point, eventually, a couple years later, she becomes a U.S. senator who is heavily plugged into all the national security committees and also profiting from her seat on a board with North Point, I believe. Uh, It's a touch vague there. Roxy goes to Besapara to oversee production of glitter, a drug that enhances uh, women's power. Her family recalls her back to London when her half-brother is raped by three girls. She dispatches them with ease. Roxy's stepmother, to thank her, gives Roxy all the documents concerning uh, her father Bernie's business with the idea that she is now the natural successor. Roxy figures out that it was actually Bernie who ordered Roxy's mother killed. Roxy threatens Bernie and forces him to retire so she can take over the business. Fast forward four years. The war in Besapara is still going on with North Moldova, and all our main characters converge on Tatiana Moskalev's uh, castle. It looks like Senator Margot has cut a deal with Moskalev uh, to assist her in her war with the North. Mother Eve thinks that Tatiana is unstable and wants to install Roxy as the leader. Tunde is watching it all. Tatiana is humiliating her male staffers uh, in full view of all the guests. Things go amiss, however. Roxy is abducted and her skein is physically removed by Bernie, who is not actually retired, to be put and transplanted into her brother, Daryl. She barely escapes uh, from the surgery with her life. Tatiana declares gender martial law uh, akin to a mix of sort of Saudi Arabia and Mad Men era 1960s (laughs) laws. Um, Tunde decides to stick around in Bespara. Anna, one of the tropes I liked in the book was how the women in power more and more objectified men as the novel went along. Did this work for you? Eh. Okay. <laughs> eh. Um, I mean, I know what she was doing. Mm-hmm. It was effective. If, if I give this book kind of the the grace of a fable, like if yeah. I, I just allow it to be what it is and don't expect more of it. Yeah, you know, that's that's a detail right. that would, in the world of this novel, mm-hmm. where the genders are flipped seamlessly, mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems it would happen. I'm going to have to point it out at, at some point, so I'll just say it now, which is that the thing that bothered me is that gender roles have developed over thousands of years mm-hmm. in our culture. And the idea that it would be so simple to it to, as to just like with the the jolt of a skein mm-hmm. rather than a snap of the fingers to just make them different kind of bothered me. I did think if you know we'll talk about capitalism more later, <laughs> uh, but, but the Roxy plotline is the is the one that kind of shows the exploitation that happens. Yeah. I um, I think I like the way you put this, which is I think the thing I liked about the book were the flourishes. Um, yeah. Again, the the cable news plot was done well. I actually did like the objectification thing. I thought that was entirely plausible. It's funny within the world of the novel. Right, yeah. I get again. I get what she's doing. But you're. But uh, but I also I agree with you that in some ways the main and we'll get to this in a second. But like the main sort of the idea that you literally would with a snap of the fingers the society would would flip like that. I'm not entirely sure. Is, is you're right. It's not accurate. I mean, some time passes. I mean, I think the book. Ostensibly nine years. Yeah, it goes over nine years. 
I agree with you that that's not quite enough to cause the kind of uh, social upheaval. Yeah, I had to check because I was like, wait a minute, you know, like, eh, all right, keep going. All right, let's close this book out. Uh, So uh, in Besapara, Tunde sees some shit. Yay, there's another rape scene. Men afraid to help Mm. him and previously abused women creating a rape cult in the woods. Oh, I think this actually makes four rep- rape scenes, by the way. Yeah, that's possible. Well, the rape scene involving Roxy's brother, we don't, we only hear about. We nope. don't see. Well, I guess no, we hear, we kind of hear it in detail. Do we hear in detail? About oh, that. you're right. Damn it. Yeah. God. Okay. So that, so there's near, there's sorry, <laughs> sorry everybody, but <laughs> very rapey this book. Yes, it's very rapey. So there's the attempted one against Tinde. Yeah. There's Daryl. There's the rape cult, yeah. and then there's the last one, which is the most upsetting which is the um, refugee camp. Yes, yes, yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, All of this problematic. Okay. All right, rape cult. Come on, let's go. (laughs) Uh, He is then captured by the rape cult women, uh, but is fortunately rescued by Roxy. Daryl, who is empowered with Roxy's skein, uh, uses it to attack Margot's daughter, who is a U.S. soldier stationed in the area. The women in his crime crew, outraged at his appropriation of Roxy's skein, kill him. Mother Eve, deciding Tatiana is too unstable, uses her power to get Tatiana to slit her own throat. Mother Eve then declares herself the leader of uh, Besapara. Roxy meets up with her and they argue over whether what the future is going to look like. Eve wants to trigger World War III so as to build a new society from the ground up in which women always have been the more powerful gender. Roxy thinks that's insane. They agree to disagree. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Margot, uh, incensed at the harm caused to her daughter by a man, urges the U.S. president to back Mother Eve. It would seem uh, that that started World War III, at which point we can sort of cue Charlton Heston screaming, you maniacs, from Planet of the Apes. That doesn't actually happen, but the point is, is that we now fast forward back to the sort of That is supposedly 5,000 years in the future right, exactly. from the World War III. So the book's epilogue goes back to the author of this history corresponding with his female mentor. It is 5,000 years in the future. Uh, Mother Eve is now perceived as like a Christ-like figure. The mentor finds that parts of Neil's history, uh, the male history, like male soldiers, implausible but quote-unquote sexy. She also thinks a world run by men would be gentler and loving. Uh, Neil wants to be taken seriously uh, as an author and not just be pigeonholed into men's lit. I had mixed feelings about the framing device. Uh, I really did like the text of it. I particularly liked the closing part because I thought that was very well written and and believable in terms of the sort of flip gender hierarchy that 5,000 years into the future after a war would have been believable. But I don't think it served the book well. What say you? Yeah. <laughs> I was actually thinking as you spoke about, of all things, Starship Troopers. <laughs> Another very violent text that we've looked at. And how that was so much easier to sort of roll with, to to suspend the weight of disbelief Mm -hmm. about, because it was so clearly meant to be a parody, meant to be a fable, you know, meant to be larger than life. And I think one of the problems with this book is, I think Mm -hmm. on, on one hand, it can't quite decide what it is. Yeah. Is it a genuine exploration of the psychological changes and the cultural changes that happen when power shifts? Mm-hmm. Or is it a kind of parody slash fable that explore that does this twist in order to show us the absurdity of gender roles, right? right? Like that's the, I'm going to go back. The twig benders thing is, is not to say that power corrupts. It's to say our gender roles are 
are constructed and foolish. And here, <laughs> it just, it, I, I don't feel like, yeah, I feel like it, it's like such a good premise. I could see getting excited about the premise mm-hmm. and then also being a good enough writer that you can create the interior lives of these characters. But I kind of wish it'd gone more gonzo, maybe. It had um, gone full fable, as it were. Yeah, yeah, I think that I could have taken it more easily. I mean, in some ways, uh, then. part of the issue might be that, that there are two strengths to this novel, and the strengths are slightly incommensurate with each other. The first is the central premise, which is an interesting idea. And like it reminded me of when right. we talked about Ursula K. Le Guin, the, the sort of yeah. the what if there. So like in some ways, that's a, a great thing. But the other strength of the book are is the flourishes, and the flourishes require a sort of grounding and detail that weirdly, I think, cuts against the fable aspect of it. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that's in some ways the, the problem. That There are legitimate strengths in this book, but the problem is the strengths don't add up to a really fantastic novel. They add up to an interesting premise and some really nice portions, but the pro- they contradict each other in terms yeah, of time. That be- Indeed, that is a <laughs> the problem with this book. It's so funny. Like I can't think if I would recommend it to people. I guess I would. Like um, you know, my my take on this is always that this might be the the IR scholar in me is that there are times where like the best discussions I have been in in terms of discussion rooms <laughs> is not about papers that are great, but about papers that provoke interesting thoughts. Are flawed. Yeah. yeah, and so or. Yeah, but time, you know, life is short, Dan. That is true. Fair enough. It's a 350-page book. Not all of life is a seminar room, so that's that's also true. Yeah. You know, Dan, you mentioned seminars. I did. Just now. So I think um, I have to to move us along. Dan? Anna? Is there IR in this book? There's some IR in this book. Yes. I, I, probably yeah, there's there seems like there's, it there's some there's a war there's several wars Multiple wars you know power so, absolutely yeah. so a, a couple of points i would say the book correctly in my view um pretty much is an attack in some ways against what we would call a particular brand of and a much older brand of feminist theory which we would consider essentialist feminism the idea that if you are biologically a woman or that that you know, women would approach the world in a fundamentally different way because of their their biology than men would. And I think in some ways the book is clearly, you know, trying to falsify that. And I would say that feminist theory is also long moved past that. Um, yeah, it's it's attacking a very tired right. straw man, a straw man that rarely has any straw left. Right. Like, but the only thing I would say is that, like, <laughs> not not all readers are extremely well versed in feminist theory. So, like, I could no, see right. why some readers might still believe that that's the, the Al-Quran way of thinking about it. The the book also, however, uh, I would be legitimately interested to see what liberal feminist feminists would have to say about it. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, well, I'm one. Can, do I count? <laughs> Not in this context. I'm sorry. I use the word liberal here, not in a sort of domestic American left-right political way of thinking, but rather in the sort of liberal theory of international politics, um, which generally focuses on the idea that democracies are more pacific toward each other than non-democracies and that there are certain like, you know, that, that the character of a domestic state changes its foreign policy to some extent, which also might be you, to be fair. (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm glad you ex- – I'm. Uh, thank you, Dan. Sorry. Thank you for explaining. But liberal uh, feminism in particular does argue, and there's, there's a fair amount of literature out there, suggesting that 
societies that generally empower women and have women in more politically powerful positions tend to be more peaceful and not necessarily, you know, towards non-democracies, but towards each other. So in some ways, there's a gender variation of the democratic peace that is often argued. Can I jump in? Please. This book, one of the ways it made me think was, you know, in having the strong negative reaction that I had, I was like, Anna, are you an essentialist now? Are you, an, are you are like, what happened to you? Like, <laughs> are you, for some reason, like going back to this, like, you know, women would be peaceful idea. And I, I think what I circled around to was this, the objection is not to her critique of, you know, essentialism, it's to the lack of uh, nuance, you yeah. know, and and the really strict binary that she has, because I was going to ask you, actually, about any literature that there is about revolts in which those who were subjugated become the rulers, and whether or not it is so exactly topsy-turvy that they then oppress right away. Because this happens real fast. So I'm glad you, you asked that question, because truthfully, the most interesting IR that this book winds up touching on is not the, the stuff on feminist theory. It is in the IR literature on revolutions and social revolutions okay. and how do states that undergo social revolutions wind up behaving. There is a book uh, that Stephen Walt wrote called uh, War and Revolution in which he actually argued that if there really is a social revolution, sometimes those states actually do act in a foreign policy way at variance with what we would expect. Um, they tend to be much more aggressive. They tend to sort of assume that their revolutionary ideology will have an appeal across borders and are willing to use force to try to promote them. So think Soviet Russia, which wound up having to fight multiple wars in, in the after uh, World War One ended. Or think about Iran deciding to invade Iraq after the Iranian Revolution, or for that matter, the French Revolution as well. And so the idea that the leader in Moldova would then declare war on four states, that actually weirdly was believable to me. That was fully consistent with Walt's argument. Now, Walt also then argues that over time, those states that ostensibly are considered themselves revolutionary states wind up becoming less revolutionary. They wind up acting more like uh, conventional states. And that's not what happens in the book. And that's not actually what I am curious about. <laughs> it's, that is interesting. Yeah. But what I'm curious about, and it, I guess it wouldn't be IR, that's why yeah. it, it's maybe not in the this section, is anything that looks at oppressed people mm -hmm. rising up and then how do they treat their former oppressors right actually that so that actually is the thing i was going to talk about next because the, oh the, okay wow all right cool. the other thing that the other uh, sort of big and more intern i get yeah yeah i get the external right. and i actually kind of i totally see it now now that you're kind of talking about it right. the ways that a revolutionary society which isn't necessarily the topsy-turvy oppressor becoming mm -hmm. the oppressed it's just social revolution of some kind right but the the would, so the, liter the, the the classic work on revolutions in political science is Theta Scotchpole's States and Social Revolutions. And the observation she makes there, it, which actually does sort of exist in the book, is the idea that no social revolution completely abandons its old structures. Right. That, that mm -hmm. like the idea is that there's a social revolution, the oppressed are now in charge. Do you therefore do away with the bureaucracy? Do you do away with all of the things that all the shackles, as it were? And, you mm -hmm. know, she actually says in the book, you know, a regime cannot in general turn overnight from one thing to another. Bureaucracies are slow. People take their time. And that's the conclusion that Scotchpole makes in, in her work as well, which is 
revolutionary regimes wind up having to rely on technocrats and people who know the bureaucracy because they can't run it themselves and because they can't necessarily demolish it either because um, that way lies like, you know, Holocaust madness like Cambodia, let's say, in, in the late 1970s. And so even revolutionaries tend to rely on, on technocrats. And this, by the way, is pretty much what happens in this book, even in... Uh, yeah, she mentions it, actually. Yeah, no, I, I said she that. She mentions, like, women don't know how to run the factories. Right. And, da, yeah. da, 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 da. and that's yeah. why, weirdly, I'm not crazy about this, but the nuclear war concept that Mother Eve comes up with is not insane. In that... Well, it is. It is insane, but, but like... It, from it, it follows its own logic, yes. yes. But, for, but it is consistent with its own logic, which is to say, if you really do want to build society from the ground up and make people forget, you know, a period when men were the more powerful gender, you got to do something like that. Um, of course, no one ever would because the idea that you're going to do something that'll eventually fix the problem 5,000 years from now or whatever strikes me as, again, insane, but there you go. Yeah. I guess the question that I have is actually maybe just not an IR one. It's more of a psychological one or a social one which is this idea that specifically do those who are oppressed, if you, if you turn the tables, are they as cruel as their former masters? And that's definitely a conceit in lots of literature. It is, I'm going to sure. say, pretty much how it tends to work in actual politics. I mean, it's not, it's not always that way. I mean, like, we can think of examples. I think Nelson Mandela... In South Africa. Right. I was also thinking of this thing that happened between um, some colonies and a great power in Europe <laughs> around 1776. <laughs> Help me here. Uh, you mean the, the American Revolution. Yes. Yes. yes that. That. That did not replicate the power structure that it rebelled against. Um, no, it didn't. But in fairness, that's because... Even once the United States was independent, it was still a relatively weak state. And what is interesting is as the U.S. wound up acquiring more and more power, um, it admittedly did not... <laughs> it becomes more and more like a monarchy. Well, it becomes more and more like it's, it, you know, it's it's imperial... It calcifies. Yeah. Power calcifies. Yeah. yeah. That's actually sort of more interesting. I almost wish... It may have been not as interesting a book, but I almost wish she'd gone the exploration of the technocratic route. You know, like... Well, what would have been interesting... What would have been interesting is, like, let, let's say you have Besapara as an independent state, but they don't declare war on four other states. They right. just create sort of a women's you know, led sort of state, that would have been another interesting novel, potentially, but different yeah. from what we actually read. But that said, Anna, I, I think it's time to ask you a question. Yes, Dan. Did you find a way to point out the evils of capitalism in this book? <laughs> I think there's some evil capitalism in this book, Dan. Oh, good. It is, as I was saying earlier, sort of most present in the, the Roxy storyline, which, you know, pretty, pretty believable, like capitalism's going to capital. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a there's a way to profit off something. You're going to profit off it, and some people will be, you know, transacted and oppressed. And that is a power structure that does, I think, kind of stay the same, no matter what, right? Yeah. I did think it was interesting that there is no interest in class in this book. Mm -hmm. I do wonder what would happen if poor women had this power <laughs> well they do right i mean you know yeah. yeah right no no what i mean but specifically for someone who has been oppressed on like all these multiple yeah. levels it like what would happen for it them? raises some interesting questions about intersectionality because yes it, I, exactly. I think and, and this in some ways was the if i had a macro political objection to this book i understand and in some ways this goes back to the idea that it might have been better as a fable because if you want to sort of ground it in the actual world even in a 
a, a, a world in which men are the dominant gender and it's it, it's a patriarchal yeah. society, that is not the only conflict going on. And that's yeah. the that was the issue in this book, which is the only thing going on is the gender flip. And so you don't see things like class conflict. You don't see things like, you know, nationalism or what have you. And and so as a result, it, it feels a touch incomplete because of that. On some level, we have a similar critique of the yeah. book. <laughs> and yeah, that's, that is just true throughout. Clearly, this woman is not a fan of capitalism, probably, because <laughs> the North Star military contractor is, is definitely, you know, an engine of, of evil in the book. Although even there, there's um, a touch cartoonish. This was actually too cartoonish for me. Yeah, I, it was too cartoonish. I agree. I agree. Like, it wasn't very well thought out. Right. Like It I, was I, just I, like... She's a British author, and I'm not sure she was terribly well-versed in the U.S., but, like, even even in, as corrupt as you think, like, U.S. politicians might be, there is no way which a sitting U.S. senator is actually... <laughs> would own would stock own, in, yeah, a, in a company. <laughs> would, would, like, be on the board, I think, or something, like, you know, like, whatever. Yeah. So, like, that, like, not even in the United States does that actually happen. So that was, like, again... A, right. It, it, it was a little cartoonish. Yeah. Yeah, and the intersectionality part is the, is is definitely this the problem throughout the book, you know, kind of what happens with race, what happens with right. class, what happens with disability. Yeah. Um, also, how does this power get commodified? You know, yeah. like it, it, that's never talked about except in the North Star sort right. of way. Also, the glitter like, thing. It's turned sort of, into yeah. a yeah, it's turned into a weapon. Right. Uh, but there, and it, it's it, we see hints of how it can be used for other things. Mm-hmm. But man, like, could we go energy independent? <laughs> If women could generate power? That's a really interesting question. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, and I'm kind of serious. No, no, no. That's like, fair. Um, <laughs> it, because Roxy is apparently able to generate just like... Tremendous amounts. Tremendous amount of power. Like, would we not need oil anymore? Right. And <laughs> like, so this was the other thing, which is... And again, this goes back to this question of what happens when there's conflict within women? Because um, it would have been... Yeah. I mean, there were suggestions of obviously fights using this power between women, but it's not... It doesn't scale up at all. And so that was, no. again, something that I found wanting. And, and again, it's not used. The, the, the power is never used any other way, <laughs> really, besides for, like, manipulation of other people, harm. Yeah. Surely there would have been, like, some... I mean, actually, I will take that back. Allie slash Mother Eve does heal some people, which I yes. found interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in any case, the... The power is never commodified like power usually is. Uh, But with that said, Dan, I think it's time to move on. We generally talk about themes Mm -hmm. in this section. Do we have themes left to talk about? I'm not really sure. I mean, I think I've... Again, one of the reasons I did like this book was that a lot of the themes in it are essentially, you know traditional poli-sci themes. I mean, the, the basic theme of this book is the corruption of power. Yeah. You know, and I will say that there, there is a way in which I did like... One element of, of the way in which the book is structured that I like in terms of creating discomfort was that the first half of the book, you feel like, oh, yay, you know, finally women are no longer being oppressed. This is a good thing. And then mm-hmm. it turns and you realize, oh, no, he, she's going somewhere else with this that you were not necessarily automatically expecting, which is to say, yeah... Power will still lead to abuse, I guess, would be the way to put it. Yeah, I, it's not a subtle book. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of themes to draw out. I can't think of anything that I would <laughs> um, that I would add besides, you know, uh, black, white, binary, 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 <laughs> man, woman, uh, powerful, not powerful. <laughs> That's all. Now, Dan, wait, do you hear something? <laughs> I, I'm seeing I'm seeing little things coming. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Dan, we're entering the debris field. Ah, okay. Do you have anything left to say about this book that we haven't covered? Um, 
I have a few things. Again, just little things. Uh, first, I did like, again, this was sort of a flourish, but I liked the... Some religion is discussed a little bit in this book, and I like the sort of switch in religious religious figures. So you have like preachers saying like, "Don't listen to Moses now; listen to Miriam," or "Stop thinking about Jesus; start thinking about Mary." And and you know, again, I, those sorts of flourishes I liked. Uh, speaking of binary, uh, you you see Alderman sort of appropriating traditional male politician discourse. So Roxy at, at one point says, you know, you want to stand with me or you want to stand against me, which is just George W. Bush basically, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, updated. One plot hole I did want to point out, which I'm still not sure if it got resolved, which is so the the logic is, is that at one point Roxy's skein is physically removed and then implanted in Daryl. And so Daryl is then able to use his power, except in the novel, it is teens who first discover how to use their skein and they have to show women how to use it so i kept wondering who showed daryl how to use it no i think that it's actually um not the younger women don't show or reveal uh, the reveal. older women how to use it yeah they awaken it okay they, they keep like she uses the word twist a lot or i mean but yeah like, i think my impression at least and i'm pretty sure i'm right here uh <laughs> is that the skein is present in in older yes, women yes. But it's not awake. Right. That it's late. And but yes. once it's awake, yeah. like they yes, they have to learn how to use it. They have to learn oh, how to use so it. Since like any woman has was to already learn how awake, Daryl didn't need to be taught how to do yeah, it. Okay, exactly. actually no, that, he did he did need to learn how to right, use it. Right, but he but it was already but, it was already active as it were. Yes. yes. Okay, no, yeah. that's good. Yeah. Uh, it's you know, my debris includes someone would have gotten around to transplanting and selling those skeins yeah. a long time ago. Yes. <laughs> maybe well, maybe it'd take nine years. I don't know. I will say again, there is some really lovely writing, especially in the sections that are actually more oblique, um, that are just sort of general descriptions of power and of nature. I really liked a lot of that. Mm. I will just add to other complaints about the kind of shallowness of the novel. Um, What happened to the birth rate when this power comes to be? What happens to children? In the womb, there are no power children in this book. From what not, not a lot of the, or nope. yeah, no young children. There's yeah. also, by the way, and there's also like, what does that power do in utero? Yeah. Like that's sort of an interesting question. I also got to add, and also just getting to the more rapey stuff. Yeah. <laughs> women would be mad that their sons were being raped, right. and if and it does. The, I will again. The book is very rapey in that it does portray this as being something like that happens a lot. Yeah. That's like common enough that i would think that there would be gangs of mothers <laughs> like roaming around guardian angels as it were. Take, yeah yeah you know taking I, I don't think it would be acceptable i don't think it would be accepted in the way that it kind of is in the book the other thing i will say in terms of like things that were legitimately missing i, I forgot to mention this before but like just geopolitically this is a book about like you know a, a fundamental transformation in the gender distribution power asia does not really appear. <laughs> okay. You are correct. India is there briefly, yeah. but like there's no mention of China. The whole continent. Yeah. yeah. Is, is not there. And it would be an interesting, China, you know, given its birth rate issues, yeah. would it be an interesting place to have visited yes. in this novel? Yeah. <laughs> like, and again, just to, it's, we almost go to a children of men issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, I imagine the birth rate would have declined, perhaps precipitously. <laughs> you that know, that's an interesting point. Um, I suspect you were right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's an incomplete book. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, again, I sort of go go back to like, would I recommend it to people? And I don't know why I'm thinking, I guess, you know, I guess that's an important thing. If you are interested in this stuff, yes. Mm -hmm. If this is something you just sort of mildly, uh, I think there, I I would just read some more Ursula K. Le Guin, man. (laughs) Like, or read Ammonite, the book that I mentioned earlier that's about the all-female planet. Which I do now Um, want to read. That... I've mentioned it to Dan several times because I really liked it and I found it fascinating in its non-essentialism mm. in the way that it portrayed, yes, this. there are some parts of this world in which women are cruel and, and, and power does corrupt, but it's not like everywhere <laughs> <laughs> in the same way that it's it, power doesn't corrupt all the same all the time. Mm. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I think there are, there are better books to read if you're interested in this question. Let me put it this way: I'm not. Sh- I am legitimately curious how the television show turns out because, as you say, th- there are issues with the book, and I'm not denying that. But also, you know, I, I she's now had a chance to deal with the feedback. They're working with showrunners. I'm kind of. I mean, there are really good shows that are often developed from not necessarily perfect books, and so I'm kind of curious how that goes. Yeah, I'll be interested too. Also, they may be able to focus it in a way that makes the um, blank spaces less obvious. Like if they make it a smaller kind of landscape, Mm -hmm. we're we're not going to be sitting around wondering what happened in China. You know, like... Like you showed us Delhi, what's, or what's going or on the in, other thing is they still go big, but they you know? have China. Like they 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 can widen it. That's also the other way to do. Uh, really depends on uh, what that budget is, Fair I guess. Yes. But we we have I think exhausted our commentary on this book. Yes, Dan. I think we are uh, safe to say done. And you know, again, thank you for not replacing me with someone younger and prettier. <laughs> <laughs> and i'll just say again you can follow us on patreon we are at patreon.com slash space the nation that is where you can give us money for cool things in return i would love to do episode to celebrate 250 patrons so me too you know yeah. cool if you want to want to sign up and, and help us also again the discord is really neat <laughs> i'm just gonna stop using the word cool a lot but <laughs> It's a really nifty place. I am there every once in a while. Dan doesn't drop by too. I often. will try to drop by a little more regularly. I apologize. It's it's it hasn't. I need to get into the habit of doing it, as it were. I need to activate my Discord go. abilities. There you, <laughs> there you go. We do have an AMA coming up in July, first Saturday in July. We will not forget what this one. Nope. And then, uh, just to review, what are we doing next, Dan? Next, we will be doing the pilot episode of Fantasy Island, the original 1970s show for our Schlock or Awe series. Uh, And then we are, I think, going to do The Trouble with Triples. And I think we need to come up with some stuff after that. And we have a long list submitted by patrons. That's really another benefit of being a patron is that you can access a spreadsheet Mm -hmm. that I created where people just list books. That's just a great list, yes. really. Um, and we're probably going to do a book, Dan, Dan, because we have two two visual texts. That's correct. I think that a book sense. will be next. That uh, we, want we have two non-books. Yes. I'll just we'll say. Have to, we'll have to pick up. a book next. I agree. Yeah. I can't think of anything else. Dan, can you think of anything else? No. Just until later. Keep this channel open for more. Mm-hmm.